Well, good morning. I'm glad you're able to be with us. Uh, this morning, we're doing something a little different. If you've been around, you know we've been in the book of 1 Peter for the last several weeks. But for the next two weeks, we're taking a short break from our studies in 1 Peter uh, to consider the topic, well, no, that's the wrong verb, to, to celebrate the topic of generosity. Next week is our Celebrate Generosity Sunday. And so this morning, we're gonna spend some time in 2 Corinthians chapter nine. And if you have a Bible, you can turn there now, 2 Corinthians chapter nine. And we're gonna be in this passage to get us into this topic of generosity. Now, as an aside, I love that I get to preach this sermon on this Sunday of this year. Why? Well, because uh, if you look at our numbers, maybe on the weekly or on our website of our giving so far this year, we're doing great as a church. We're doing so well. Praise God uh, for your faithfulness and for the faithfulness of our church in, in giving. I don't have to employ guilt. I don't have to lay it on thick. I don't have to engender a sense of obligation or sympathy. I don't have to make a plea for us to, to tighten our belts and open our wallets so that we can make budget. I don't have to do that. Uh, there may be a day when a sermon like that would be in order, but not today. I don't have to do that because we're doing great. So instead, I have the privilege of getting us to consider why we give, to think about giving, and then to together be called to press on in giving the way that God loves. So we're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. What's the background of our passage before we get into it? Well, you may remember from our time in 1 Corinthians a year ago, uh, that one of the storylines, one of the threads uh, in these letters, in this book, with Paul in this church in Corinth, is that he is gathering a collection for the church in Jerusalem. Uh, they are about to go through a severe famine and be impoverished. And, and so he's, he's going around to all the churches that he's established, and he's taking up a collection to give to the saints back in Jerusalem. Part of his visiting and his writing ministry involved collecting this offering to give to their brothers and sisters across the Mediterranean. Now, he mentions that in both letters, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and he's writing to remind them that he's coming to them. He's coming to take up this collection and he's encouraging them to give. That said, Paul, the great pastor, is most concerned with how they give and how they can be generous. So our main point is this. It's kind of a mouthful. Hang in with me. That's kind of an anagram as well. But our main point is this. Our loving God generously creates generous people that he loves. Let me say that again. Our loving God generously creates generous people that he loves. So with that, let me uh, read for us the text. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, we'll be reading verses 6 to 15. Hopefully your Bible is open as we dive in. Paul writes this. He says, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give, give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food 
will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. And church, this is the word of the Lord, and we can agree with Paul and say, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. Okay, so we are talking about generosity. Our loving God generously creates generous people that he loves. So we can ask, what is the generosity that God loves? What, what does that look like? Okay, well, our outline has five points. Here we go. Generosity marked by cheerfulness and joy. God loves a generosity fueled by the gospel of grace. God loves a generosity lived in real time. A generosity that yields righteousness. And generosity that produces thanksgiving to God. That's our outline. Let's get into it. First, God loves a generosity marked by cheerfulness and joy. Paul begins right there in verse 6, summing it up. He says, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Okay, the point is clear. Be generous. Don't be cheap. But then we get this key verse where Paul tells us how to give, how to be generous, and how not to give. He says, decide in your heart. Okay, don't give reluctantly or under compulsion. He said, don't be manipulated or beguiled or swindled. Being duped is not the same thing as being generous. Verse 5, right before our passage, he uses the word exaction. He says, don't give a gift because of exaction. The idea is, is don't give a gift that's expecting something in return. Now, here's where the context helps us make sense of this, of this passage. In the first century world, okay, kind of generally accepted wisdom, street smarts said that you should really only give, be generous towards those who could give in return. Whether it's money, whether it's a gift or a meal or a form of hospitality, when you give to someone, you create a bit of a relational debt with them. There's this expectation that they will return the favor eventually. I scratch your back, you scratch mine. And so you can read in the Old Testament how kings, they would give these elaborate gifts of gold and spice and all this stuff to a king. And there was kind of this expectation, hey, there may come a day when I need a favor from you. And then so kings would do this with each other. And so to do... Otherwise, to give to someone who couldn't ever pay back the favor, well, this was considered foolish. It wasn't prudent behavior. This makes Jesus' teaching so revolutionary in Luke chapter 6 or Luke 14, where he comes along and he makes it clear that our generosity should specifically be with no expectation of return. It was a wild idea in the first century. Well, Paul is most likely picking up on Jesus' teaching and he's teasing it out. Now, as we think about our context today, we still kind of live under the shadow of Christendom. And so they're still just generally accepted, even though people aren't a part of churches. There's still this idea that, yeah, you should be altruistic. You should give out of the goodness of your own heart. Uh, but 
we also know that there's plenty of people in our world who have all kinds of other reasons that they give and that they're generous that include some expectation of return. There are those in our world who like the return of their name on a building or their name attached to an endowment at a university. They want to be memorialized as generous people to a particular institution. There are those who like the return of public affirmation for their giving. And so they might give through something like GoFundMe or another social platform where it allows others to know just how generous they are. There are corporations that give to the social issue of the day to be able to advertise that we care and they hope you don't read, you know, the small print on the bottom that says about our profits and bottom line. But it's not just outside the church. We can be prone to this too. Maybe we subconsciously have a, a little mental ledger going that we maintain and, and we give or we're generous with others because either they have given or maybe we're expecting, okay, when's it going to be our turn? When are they going to give in return? Maybe we like the return that giving provides us on our tax filing every year. Maybe we like the return of being known as generous people as we carefully curate our identity and what people think of us. We want to be known as givers. Maybe like verse 7, we like the, the return of a, a brief release of feelings of guilt. You know, if we can give a little bit to a cause, well, then we don't have to feel bad about the overwhelming suffering going on around the world. And so like an, an emotional aspirin or a cocktail, it takes the, the edge off and we like that return. Maybe we've been taken in by the false gospel and the pernicious heresy that teaches that if you give to God, he will reward you with health and wealth and prosperity. Now that is a lie from the pit of hell. But whatever it may be, Paul says, okay, just stop. Stop for a second. That is not the generosity. That is not the kind of giving that pleases God. That's not the kind that he loves. I love it. Some, someone in my community group this week was talking about the difference between, you know, this bad kind of giving and cheerful giving. He says, you know, that reluctance, that compulsion, it's like you're holding on tight. You're only giving if they can pry it out of your cold, dead fingers. But cheerful giving, you're open-handed. That's absolutely right. I love that. So what does God love? He loves a cheerful giver. Now, the Greek word for cheerful is hilaron, okay? It comes from the same root from where we get our English word hilarious, okay? They don't mean the same thing, but they're connected. So if something is hilarious, well, then it causes you to be hilaron, to be cheerful, okay? Something hilarious cheers you up. It makes you cheerful. And so our giving must flow from the cheer that wells up in our hearts, not guilt or greed or otherwise. And that's the kind of generosity that pleases God. God loves the heart of the giver more than the gift. Have you ever thought about the fact that God doesn't need your money? The psalmist says that, that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Okay, he doesn't need us. He doesn't. But he wants us to be cheerful givers. It pleases him when our hearts respond, not out of greed, but in response to his goodness. As I was preparing this week, I was trying to wrap my mind around what I was wanting to say, and the phrase that kind of kept coming up in my head and wrote down in my notes was that our, our generosity, it looks like laughing with open hands. That's kind of the image for generosity I want to have. God's goodness to us is, it's so astounding, 
we can't help but laugh at his lavish love towards us. And, and that laughter kind of opens up our hands to be generous towards others. Generosity, the kind of generosity that God loves, is marked by cheerfulness and joy. So next week, at our Celebrate Generosity Sunday, we're asking people to give above and beyond their normal giving. The initiatives, the things that, that, we are, that we're going to give to this year, they're the types of things that we already give to as a church through our faithful giving month over month. But we're saying, let's respond to God's goodness to us and let's give above and beyond. Let's abound. Let's bust out laughing at what God is like and what he's doing and start giving. Because generosity is marked by cheerfulness and joy. So how do we get that cheerfulness and joy? That's our second point. God loves a generosity fueled by the gospel of grace. See, our giving isn't hilarious, no, but God's grace is the thing that causes our hearts to respond with cheerful giving. Look at verse 8 in your Bibles. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is so key. What fuels our generosity is not our financial acumen. It's not our ability to game the system. It's not a desire for any kind of return as we just saw. And it's not even the compassion or love we feel for others, though that may play a part. What fuels our generosity is that we already have been given everything through God's grace, which has abounded to us. God fuels our generosity. And so Paul goes on. He says in verse 10, He who supplies seed for the sower will supply seed for your sowing. Verse 11, he says, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. God is the one. He supplies. He enriches. He fuels our generosity. We don't have to drum up the motivation ourselves. We don't have to heap guilt onto ourselves to get ourselves to do it. No, no. God creates a generous people. But what exactly is the seed that he supplies? What are we being enriched with? This is such an important question. Because we can be tempted to read verses 10 and 11 and think that God will increase our bank accounts so that we can be generous. But is that true? Does he supply our generosity by making our finances abound? I don't think the text actually supports that. Now hang with me. Look at verse 8 and verse 11 again. Okay, those two verses. There's four key words I want us to, to see and kind of hold on to. And then we'll jump to another passage. But look at this. Verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Then in verse 11, he says, you will be enriched, enriched or, or made wealthy in every way to be generous in every way. Okay, you have those four words, grace, abound, enriched or made wealthy, and generous. Okay, well, look at your Bibles. Look at the opposite page, okay? Uh, chapter 8. Look at chapter 8. Look at verses 1 and 2. Okay, this is where Paul is going to begin his appeal for the Corinthians generosity, but he starts by telling them of another church, of the generosity of the Macedonian churches. And he says in verses 1 and 2, listen to this. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their 
abundance of joy, there's that word abound, and extreme poverty have overflowed or abounded in a wealth or a richness of generosity on their part. Do you see all four words again? And it's God's grace, not finances, which is given that leads to joy abounding so that even those in extreme poverty can abound in generosity. This is huge because it means that even those who are poor can participate in this work of God. Even those who aren't flushed with cash, as John Ralphio would say, can abound in this good work that pleases God. Do you know the names John and Laura Arnold? Or Gordon and Betty Moore? How about the name Chuck Feeney? No? I didn't know these names either before this week. Okay, but between the years 2014 and 2018, that five-year period, I think this is the last time it was recorded, all of those three sets of names that I didn't know, all of them gave more money to charity than Mark Zuckerberg, who himself gave $1 billion to charity during that time. $1 billion. And all those other names, they gave more. But guess what? None of them even cracked the top five philanthropists for that time period. Now, you might know the names of the top two spots. The top spot goes to Warren Buffett and the second spot to Bill and Melinda Gates. And they gave away almost $15 billion and $10 billion respectively during that time. Okay, but here's the crazy thought. Get this, okay? Did you know that your tithe last month, if you gave, was potentially more pleasing to God than those billions of dollars? I know, I, I need to be careful here. I can't presume to know what God thinks with certainty, which is why I use the word potentially. But if you gave of your money to the things of God last month, it potentially was more pleasing to God than those astronomical numbers I just shared, given by the world's largest philanthropists. How can I possibly say that? Well, you may remember Jesus sitting in the temple. He's sitting there with his disciples and he's watching people come in and put their, their money into the treasury. And he sees this old widow, impoverished widow, come in and take these two small copper coins and drop them in the box. And Jesus looks at his disciples and he points to the woman and he says, you see that woman? She gave more than all of the rest because they gave out of the abundance of their riches and she gave out of her poverty all that she had to live on. Now, if we take Jesus seriously, then we realize God is not concerned with how much we give, but how we give. There is a way to give that pleases him, a way that he loves. The Macedonians, fueled by the grace of God, out of their extreme poverty, gave. And Paul calls it a wealth of generosity, and God delighted in it. God is more concerned with how we give than how much we give. God loves a cheerful giver because a cheerful giver is fueled by the gospel of grace. Now, can I pause for a second and just give a brief encouragement? If you're listening to this or watching this and you consider yourself young with very little expendable income, my encouragement to you is to start giving now. It does not get easier when you start making more. It doesn't work like that. In the wise words of, of those philosophers, 
Biggie Smalls and Michael Scott, Mo Money, Mo Problems. Okay, people with more money tend to have more obligations that just increase their need to cling, to hold on. There's more entanglements. So give now. The habits you start now, the disciplines you work into your life now will serve you if and when your financial situation changes. Okay, back to our text. Generosity does not require financial abundance, but an abundance of grace. So look at verse 13. The Jerusalem church, the recipients of the generosity, what will they do? They will glorify God. Why? Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of grace, the work of Christ on the cross, the generosity of God demonstrated through Jesus, this is what fuels our generosity. This is what causes us to abound in joy. This is what makes us cheerful givers. It's what opens our hands. When we relish all that God has done, our joy will overflow and abound with hearts of generosity that laugh at God's gratuitous love and can't help but to open our hands towards others. God's grace does that. It fuels our generosity. Our loving God generously creates generous people that he loves. Okay. God loves a generosity that's marked by cheerfulness and joy, a generosity that is fueled by the gospel of grace. Third, God loves a generosity lived in real time. Okay, generosity, it's not just a feeling. Okay, it's acted out. Generosity is lived in real time. God doesn't just want a people who feel generous. He is making a people who are generous and live it out. So in verse 9, Paul quotes from Psalm 112. It's kind of a weird interruption when you read it. You don't realize what he's doing. But it tells us, Psalm 112 tells us of the person who fears God and delights in God and therefore is righteous and just. And in describing this person, we're told that he is given to the poor. He is generous and has shown it in action. Now in a second, we'll get to the righteous part. But notice that his generosity is not just an idea. It's not just a feeling towards others. It is lived out. It's an action. And we can see this also in verse 12. Look at it. Where the generosity Paul is encouraging will supply the needs of the saints. There were real people in Jerusalem at this time undergoing a real famine. And Paul was collecting real money to meet their real needs. Generosity is not some esoteric idea up in the clouds. No, it touches the ground. And right now, there are real churches in the third world whose pastors would love real training that can be made possible by our real dollars given next week. And right now, there are real children being trafficked around the world that ministries like Zoe International are working to provide real rescue and real care and real support, which is made possible by our real dollars. And right now, you have real neighbors that might be blessed by the real dinner that you bring them this week as they're in a place of need. And right now, you have real community group members that might be blessed by the real time you give them to encourage them relationally, or the real skills that you offer to help them through a stressful week. And right now, there are real people in need that are praying for God to meet their needs. And you might just be the means that God uses to provide a real answer to those prayers. Generosity is lived in real time, 
fueled by the gospel, abounding in joy, we get to be cheerful givers who do God's real work in the real world. Now, I know this may have felt a little tedious, but so many Christians, so many disciples, they like the ideals of God's kingdom more than they like living out those ideals. They like the idea of going to a church that cares for the poor more than they like giving their own money to do that work. They like the idea of going to a church that does acts of generosity more than they like giving of their time or money to make that happen. But friends, there's no institution out there that does things for us. We are the church. We are the body of Christ in the real world. We are the means, the instrument that God is using today to lavish his love on the world. He doesn't need us, but he chooses to use us. So living this out means letting his grace overflow through our lives into real action. Maybe you need to take some stock of your life. Maybe you need to do what verse 7 says and, and decide in your heart how you will respond to God's lavish grace in your life in real time. Remember, God did not sit back and broadcast his love for you from the heavens. Now, what did he do? He came down in, in real time and he took on real flesh and he lived a real life. And he went through a real trial and was, was tortured in a real way and put on a real cross and he died a real death. And his body was put in a real grave and then he was raised to new life. All of that for you in real time. Now, we get to respond in love in real time as well. Okay, generosity is marked by cheerfulness and joy. It's fueled by the gospel of grace. It's lived in real time. Fourth, the generosity that God loves yields righteousness. Okay, in Psalm 112, the righteous person demonstrates his righteousness, his godlikeness through righteous generosity. But Paul goes further to say that God wants to use our efforts at generosity to produce more righteousness in us, to make us more Christ-like. I don't know about you, but I am a naturally selfish person. And there are parts of my heart that are greedy and that want to stockpile. And in our sinful state, we're all like the dragon smog with an insatiable hunger for more gold and relentlessly guarding our hoard. Or maybe we're like Gollum, hunched over, mesmerized by our precious. But get this, our loving God generously creates a generous people that he loves. He transforms those little creatures into these generous, cheerful givers. It's an amazing work of God. Look again at our passage, verse 7. We're told that, that God loves cheerful givers. So what does he do? Well, he creates some. Verse 8. He takes greedy little dragons and golems and he makes grace abound to us so that we may now abound in every good work. God causes us to grow in the good work of generous, cheerful giving, which in verse 9 is a mark of righteousness. Do you see it? Generosity yields righteousness. It leads to greater and greater Christ-likeness. 
Paul says in verse 10 that God, he gives us seed for sowing. Okay, that's his grace in Christ. It's going to, what motivates our giving, which is planted through our generosity. And what comes out? What is harvested? Well, it's a harvest of righteousness. Generosity is a vehicle for God's supernatural sanctification in our lives. Our giving is a means that God uses to make us more holy, more like himself, more like Jesus. Which is why in chapter 8, verse 9, Paul reminds us of the generosity of Jesus. He says, be like Jesus. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Friends, this is so cool. If we are fueled by the gospel of grace and we give cheerfully in real time, God uses that to make us more like Jesus. We don't just strive to live out kingdom values now. No, we are being prepared now for the kingdom. Your giving is a means by which his kingly rule takes root in your life. And imagine how cool it will be to live in a world one day marked by open-handed, joy-filled, gospel-fueled generosity. No more suspicion, no more greed, no more clinging, no more fear of not having enough, but only righteous, Christ-like, sacrificial joy and cheerful giving abounding everywhere. That's the world we're headed for. That is the reality being wrought in you and in the church. And in his wise goodness, God is pouring out his grace on us that it might overflow and abound out into the world to show the world what he is like. Our loving God generously creates a generous people that he loves, which naturally sets up our final point. The generosity he loved produces thanksgiving to God. Let me read again verses 11 to 15 slowly. And just, just soak this in. Okay, having in view all that God is doing through our cheerful giving, listen to the result. Verse 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For this ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify who? God, not us. Because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The generosity of the saints is a work and gift of God. And so we turn and thank him for his work in our lives and in other people's lives that leads to meeting real needs. This is why we celebrate generosity, because it is a, a bright, shining, amazing example of God's work in the world and in our lives. Generosity is a supernatural work of God in which we get to participate. God performs the miracle, but we get to be in the middle of it. We get to act the miracle. As we open our hands, as we give, we step into a work of God, God blessing others. We become instruments in his hands. Now, beyond just generosity, we might sometimes wonder, you know, 
Why does God have a church at all? Why did he decide to do it this way? Well, because he chooses to work through humans to accomplish his purposes. You know, at times it seems to me a little inefficient, but who am I to question God? But as Paul will say later in the letter of 2 Corinthians, his grace is sufficient for us. And his power is made perfect in weakness. God gets a greater glory for working his purposes through us. He takes flawed, greedy, selfish people and he makes them cheerful givers while meeting the needs of others through them. It's amazing. Now, as we wind down, I want us to look again at verse 6, where Paul says, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, your Bible may have a footnote explaining that the word bountifully or generously, in Greek, it's the word blessing. Whoever sows blessings reaps blessings. If we apply verse 6 to ourselves, well then, we could say we take God's blessings in our lives and we sow them through generous giving and we will reap, well, the double blessing of, of meeting real needs but also greater righteousness in our hearts. But from another angle, we could say verse 6 is exactly what God has done and is doing. God doesn't sow sparingly. He sows blessings. So Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Or Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ Jesus with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. God has blessed us so generously by his grace. And so we turn and we bless him, giving thanks to him. And so church, next week we are setting aside that Sunday to celebrate generosity. We're going to rejoice at the hilarity of God's lavish grace and open our hands and open our wallets and give as we give thanks to God for his work in and through us. We will celebrate a generosity marked by cheerfulness and joy as we have an opportunity to laugh with open hands. We will celebrate a generosity fueled by the gospel of grace which has been poured out upon us and it is flowing out of us. We will celebrate a generosity lived in real time as we get to participate in God's work in the world. He doesn't need our money to answer prayers, but he uses it. We get to be a part of that. How cool is that? We will celebrate generosity that yields righteousness as God is making us more like Christ through our giving and we get to witness the Holy Spirit at work. And we will celebrate a generosity that produces thanksgiving to God because it begins and ends with him. From start to finish, our giving is God's work. And so we praise him. We are not celebrating ourselves and how cool we are. We are celebrating him. So church, our loving God generously creates a generous people that he loves. So let's celebrate generosity.